This is Coast to Coast with Robert Ambrogi and J. Craig Williams, America's top web bloggers in the legal profession. And yes, they are attorneys, both of them, one from California, one from Massachusetts. You can only guess what will happen next. Coast to Coast is sponsored by Law.com, right here on the Legal Talk Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Legal Talk Network. You're listening to Coast to Coast, the top-rated legal radio show on the web. I'm Craig Williams in Southern California. And I'm Bob Ambrogi from uh, just north of Boston, Massachusetts. I write the blog called Law Sites and another blog called Media Law. And I write a blog called May It Please the Court. Today, Bob, we're going to be talking about the recent Supreme Court ruling in favor of the Internet auction giant eBay, and it's brought patent law to the forefront of the legal world. This case and other patent cases, such as the BlackBerry lawsuit, are causing quite a stir in much of the corporate and consumer world. Some of the background on the eBay case, a a small Virginia-based patent holding company named Merck Exchange sued eBay for violating one of its patents related to the Buy It Now auction feature on eBay. And in response, the U.S. District Court awarded Merck Exchange $29 million and stopped just short of issuing an injunction against eBay's Buy It Now feature, in part because eBay stipulated that it would design around the patent that it infringed. And on appeal, the U.S. Supreme Court uh, uh, sided with eBay and ruled that a federal court uh, should weigh more traditional standards uh, for applying an injunctive relief uh, than has been normally thought to be the case in patent cases. They should apply the more normal equity standards for applying injunctive relief. Uh, it's kind of turned uh, patent law on its head because it's presumed that uh, these injunctions uh, could be granted almost automatically in these cases. Well, it really didn't affect the monetary judgment, and it brings a very involved case that brings up a lot of other issues. So let's bring our guests in today and start the discussion. Joining us uh, first today is Rachel Krevins. Rachel is a partner at the law firm of Morrison & Forster in San Francisco. She is uh, focuses her practice in patent litigation and related proceedings uh, and also in fiduciary litigation. Uh, although she's uh, from San Francisco, she's calling, speaking to us today from Washington, D.C. Welcome to the show, Rachel. Morning. I'm happy to join you. And our second guest is expert Dennis Crouch. Dennis is a patent attorney at the law firm McDonald, Bain, Holbert, and Berghoff in Chicago. His practice focuses primarily on patent litigation and patent prosecution. Dennis is also the author of the popular and award-winning patent law blog, Patently O. Welcome, Dennis. Thanks a lot. Rachel, I wonder if we could start with you and ask you, I, I, I probably uh, somewhat mangled the holding of the uh, eBay case, but maybe you could fill us in on the the basic issue uh, uh, before the Supreme Court and what the Supreme Court decided in that case. Sure. And and by the way, I think it's very apt that you brought up the BlackBerry case because the, the real issue in the BlackBerry case, when, when push came to shove, it, when the litigation ultimately settled, was this issue of an injunction. Um, BlackBerry really thought they had a chance of um, getting the whole patent invalidated. In fact, the patent office was looking at it um, literally as the district court was ruling, but because of the immediate threat of injunction, um, BlackBerry could not wait. Um, let, let me talk a little bit about what the Supreme Court did, and I'll try to be brief. Uh, the, the standard equitable test for an injunction is the four factors. Um, first, that the plaintiff has suffered an irreparable injury. Second, that usual remedies that are available under what's called legal remedies, that is money, are somehow inadequate to compensate the plaintiff for that injury. 
um, because there's some injury there that money can't make up for. And third, that if you look at the balance of hardships, that an injunction would work on the plaintiff and the defendant that's balanced tips in favor of uh, the plaintiff, that, that is, of granting an injunction. And fourth, that the public interest wouldn't be hurt if an injunction were granted. And the interesting thing about the eBay case is no one was really seriously saying that, that courts don't apply that test. What they were saying was they don't apply the test correctly. And in the particular case, the, the exact eBay case, what happened was that the district court, when it applied the four-factor test, which it did, um, said um, as to one of the factors, it was going to basically say, I'm going to treat this factor differently in this case because this particular plaintiff is in the business of licensing its patents, and therefore I'm going to regard that factor as automatically holding against them, and I'm not going to grant injunction for that reason. It basically said, here's a categorical kind of rule, a principle that I think a court should apply when the plaintiff isn't in the business that the patent is about. They're simply in the business of licensing patents. And the Federal Circuit went, in the, in the, in the Supreme Court's view, in the opposite direction. Um, the district court, therefore, didn't grant an injunction. The Federal Circuit said that was wrong. And it, when it went through its analysis, said, well, we, we think that when you have a patent and when it's infringed and, and the, a jury or court has found that it's infringed, basically there's a presumption uh, under, this, under the four factors that an injunction should issue. And the Supreme Court said, okay, courts at every level have to actually honestly apply the four-factor test, and you can't, in effect, take shortcuts by announcing categorical rules that you're going to say in this factual circumstance or that factual circumstance, just as a matter of, of falling into this category, either injunction will issue or it won't. And in effect, you have to look at every single case on its facts, and you can't say... Um, if you fall into this fact pattern, injunction always will issue or it always will not issue. So in effect, the Supreme Court took both the district court and the appellate court to task, each for, for making a mistake going in, in opposite directions. But really, the, the Supreme Court said they both made the same mistake, which is rather than actually looking at the totality of the facts in each of the cases and, and, and looking at each factor and then balancing the equities, they said, we find a particular fact here is overwhelming, and therefore the injunction will issue in the, in the case of the appeal court or won't issue in the case of the district court. So it, the, the Supreme Court didn't announce a new rule. It said people have to go to more trouble to actually apply the rule on its face and without using presumptions that make the analysis easier or quicker. Dennis, do you think that rule would be had been turned out differently if Merck Exchange had been an actively uh, an active business, not just a uh, licensing company? Well, I mean, first of all, I think that Merck Exchange argued that it that it that it had been an active business, and that they were trying to, you know, that they were trying to put this uh, buy it now feature. Essentially, they were trying to put that in the market, but you know, because of eBay's alleged infringement, they were losing out in the marketplace. So, you know, so they were arguing that they were trying. Uh, you know, but I don't think that that is changing, uh, you know, that's, that doesn't change really the, uh, the fact of whether or not we should apply these rules. But uh, I, I think that that will be a factor if, uh, you know, in the future in, uh, in actually applying these rules when a court comes up and sees that there's a, uh, 
a plaintiff who is only looking for uh, royalties, I think that they will use that as a factor. They can't, they can't take that as a presumption that no injunction should issue, but I think that it will be used as a factor that uh, monetary damages might just be sufficient. And one of the interesting things about this case is, like many Supreme Court cases, there's more than one opinion. Um, although, in, in this case, there is a unanimous opinion that was uh, written by Judge Thomas. But even though that was a unanimous opinion, there are two concurrences, and seven judges joined one or the other of the concurrences. And, and the concurrences actually are in some ways more interesting than the main opinion. And, and following up on what Peter just said, um, if, you, if you look at the second concurrence, which was uh, written by Justice Kennedy and it was joined by three other judges, um, Stevens, uh, Souter, and Breyer, what that concurrence said is it, 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 it talked a little bit about the main opinion in the first concurrence, which said, Judge Roberts said in the first concurrence, let's, let's not forget we're not writing on a on a blank slate here, there's a long history of courts using these four factors and considering whether injunctions should issue, and most of the time they have. Um, and the second concurrence says, we, in effect, we understand that, um, but, but we should also understand and, and apply that precedent from the past in light of the commercial context in which those cases were decided. And if you're looking at a case today, and the facts of the case are like the cases of the past in terms of the commercial context, then the outcome of those past cases may well be instructive in applying the four-factor test. But if the commercial context is different now, then the outcome of those past cases is not particularly instructive. And, and the, the examples that the second concurrence gives for how that might be, you might see that actually come into play, is exactly the kind of thing that Peter is talking about where you have um, you have a a company which is simply a patent-holding company and is only in the business of licensing, although, of course, here the plaintiff said that that was not the case for them. And then they gave another couple of examples as well. And and so I think, um, you know, like many Supreme Court opinions, you, you have to read a little bit between the lines of the opinion and then look at the concurrences and say, what is the court really trying to tell us here in addition to the instruction of the main opinion, which is, you must really go through the whole analysis and not use presumptions to shortcut it. So, Dennis, if you're an everyday uh, patent litigator, does this mean that you should be counseling or give some at least some consideration to counseling your clients to file only requests for injunction and not for monetary damages? Um, you know, I, I don't think uh, that that's necessarily the case. Um, but what you do need to do is before filing, you you need to make sure that you have built a case that you have a case for getting an injunction, that you uh, have some story to tell about why an injunction is critical for your business, how, uh, you know, how it might result. You know, if the other side gets to continue infringing, it might ruin your goodwill or, or, or some other factor that the court might find irreparable harm due to allowing an injunction. You know, and, and, and speaking about what Rachel just talked about, I, I think this happens a quite often. But in this case, you know, the Supreme Court really, it seems to me like they took a sledgehammer to this, uh, to this problem and just hit it really hard and said, you have to apply these four factors. But the uh, unanimous opinion is only, you know, five and a half pages long and really doesn't give a court any, any guidance on how to apply those four factors. 
Now, there is quite a bit of guidance in the two concurrences, but uh, as, you know, as we just heard, those two concurrences take opposite sides. And, and, and so I think that uh, lower courts are going to have some trouble really applying this. You know, well, essentially, they'll be able to, to apply the four factors, but this case does not give us guidance or really any real indication of how they are going to apply it. I, I'm trying to understand, because Rachel said earlier that this case doesn't really establish new law, but but doesn't it really change the practice dramatically, and is there, at least in terms of how the Federal Circuit would apply the law, and the Federal Circuit is kind of uh, God when it comes to patent law. That's right. You know, that's, that's, that's absolutely right. Up to, you know, for the past 15 years, there's really been a, an extremely strong presumption that once a patent is found valid and infringed, that, uh, that an injunction should follow. A- and I think that's based on really this presumption that a patent is an exclusive right, therefore, uh, if someone is infringing your patent, then you're suffering this irreparable injury. A- and so that there is just that strong presumption from, from that standpoint. And, and I think it's, it may very well result that uh, this, this does change the game. And I certainly think that in the next, certainly in the next few months, we will start to see some district court cases that, um, uh, that decide not to issue injunctions. And so the question becomes, what, is, what does this mean for uh, this whole issue of patent trolls? I mean, Rachel, you mentioned earlier the, the BlackBerry case, and, and uh, uh, what are the implications uh, for cases such as that? Well, I, I think that the second concurrence in particular is an invitation to defendants, or maybe a suggestion to defendants, who are sued by these companies which have come to be referred to as patent trolls, um, to say, here's the argument you should make against injunction if you are faced with that. Um, and and here is a, here's a line of reasoning that you should be able to use, not, not necessarily successfully, but you should at least be able to make the argument that under the four-factor test, here is a reason why the factors should apply in your case differently than they have applied in most cases in the past. And, and, and I think when you read the second concurrence, it's pretty plain that the justices who joined that concurrence were thinking along those lines, saying you know, commercial reality is part of what enters into applying this four-factor test. And commercial reality today and, and the existence, for example, of these sorts of patent troll companies or also the existence of, of and this is the other example they give, very, very complicated products, particularly, for example, the electronics industry where the, the thing that's accused of infringement is a small component of a big product. Um, and they say, that's a different kind of fact pattern than you might have had in, in, the, in the long history of patent litigation. And so the, the weight of the precedent that injunctions often issued, in fact, almost always issued, should not necessarily govern the modern results where you have different commercial contexts, either the, 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 the patent-holding company as the plaintiff that doesn't have a product itself, or an accused product, which is not, is not, it's not the product itself that infringes, it's one small component of it, and so the outcome of this analysis ought, they suggest, to be different in those cases. And, and so I think, depending on the facts of a particular case, the concurrence may give defendants, you know, more new arguments than they had before or less. And, and, and certainly think, you know, what, what my, my fellow guest here just said about 
the past, absolutely true. When courts have applied the four, the four uh, factor test in the past, particularly at the federal circuit level, um, they have basically applied the presumption in recent years that if infringement has been proven, which it, it, it by definition has if you're talking about a permanent injunction at the end of a case, you can presume that the first factor and, 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 and also the second factor both are resolved in favor of the plaintiff. So if you're RIMS attorneys or the attorneys for Blackberries, are you kicking yourself now with the benefit of uh, 2020 hindsight for not waiting for this opinion to come out? No, because you didn't have a choice. They, they didn't have time to wait. They couldn't have waited. They did everything that they could right, but um, if the, to try if to the, wait. If the federal court had issued an injunction, do you think the Supreme Court would have overturned it based on this ruling? I don't think the Supreme Court would have overturned a specific injunction in that case in the same way that they... You know, what they said in this case was, we're not expressing any view on the proper outcome of an injunction. We simply are telling the courts that we want them to analyze it themselves using the proper analysis. Here's what we say the proper analysis is. And, and they, they literally say, we have no view on whether injunction actually should issue. Um, but, you know, it, it's, it, this case is, it's, it's really ironic that this case came out this week I guess last week, and and Judge Roberts just made a speech in which he said one of his goals for the court was to have more opinions that were truly unanimous. And here we see this opinion in which, you know, when you get the opinion, you first look at it and it says it's unanimous, but then if you actually read the concurring opinions, you can see that it, it isn't truly unanimous. And and even in, even in this, which is pretty straightforward if you just read the main opinion, and it's one of the shortest Supreme Court opinions I've ever seen, you can see that the justices don't quite see it the same way. So I think it'll be a couple of years, maybe three or four years, before we can really tell what impact this opinion is going to have, because we have to wait and see how, you know, how 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 the majority of district courts apply it, and then we have to wait and see what happens when the first decisions from district courts get to the federal circuit, and not just one panel, but five or six different panels of the federal circuit have treated injunctions, and and then we can see what this really all means. Well, Rachel and Dennis, we are going to take a short break right now. When we come back, we'll have much more on cases that are reshaping our patent system. Coast to Coast comes back in just 60 seconds. We invite you to visit Law.com for timely legal news and in-depth resources. From daily headlines to practice-specific updates, Law.com provides up-to-date information to those working in the legal profession. As part of its coverage, Law.com is proud that J. Craig Williams' blog, May It Please the Court, and Robert Ambrogi's blog, Law Sites, are part of its blog network. Don't wait any longer. Visit Law.com today and get free subscriptions of our Newswire newsletter with the top legal stories of the day. Or sign up for a free trial subscription to one of our Practice Center sections. If you found us in the podcast library of iTunes, thanks for listening. Check out some of our other shows at LegalTalkNetwork.com and become a member. It's free. Coast to Coast is produced by the Legal Talk Network and a staff of broadcast professionals. If you have an idea for a topic or a show, we want to hear from you. Go to LegalTalkNetwork.com and send us an email. A video settlement documentary can be the most powerful and persuasive way to bring about a speedy settlement in your client's case. 
The Boston Media Group has a staff of television professionals with 20 years experience writing and producing compelling stories just like the ones you've seen on 60 Minutes or Dateline. We put a human face on the lawsuit with compelling interviews, dramatizations, and visual presentations of the fact. Think of it as a video opening argument that will compel the attorneys on the other side to settle. Call us for a consult at 800-317-5221. That's 800-317-5221. Or check out our website at bostonmediagroup.com. Welcome back to Coast to Coast. I'm Bob Ambrogi. And I'm Craig Williams. Our guests today are Rachel Crevins and Dennis Crouch. Um, Dennis, let's toss you a question in terms of what effect do you think the ruling that we've been discussing is going to have on bona fide inventors who don't have the resources to use a patent or defend it? Um, well, you know, I think first of all, this, uh, you know, when you, when you first look at this uh, decision, you, you look at it and you say across the board, patents just lost a little bit of their value uh, because, uh, you know, Two weeks ago, there was a strong presumption that you would get an injunction, and now that's gone. So, you know, so in terms of investment in, in patents, the first glance looks like that's going to, uh, that, that, that that might decrease because, um, you know, because of a patent's decreased value. Now, at a second look, I think that this, uh, this might have somewhat of an opposite effect because uh, something... Some, some sort of type of pruning effect where, where really what the court's done is, is pruned back the law a little bit, and, and I think that's going to perhaps put a stop to some uh, patent reform measures that were, uh, that were really threatening to, uh, to weaken the patents in this way, to, excuse me, to weaken the, you know, an individual patent right in this way and, and in other ways also. So, you know, so... At, in the final analysis, we don't know whether this is going to actually decrease the value of a patent. But, uh, you know, it does put an individual inventor in a, in a more difficult bargaining position. Uh, whereas before, they had, you know, even, you know, if one single person had the potential of shutting down uh, an entire product line for a corporation based on a single patent. And, and that just might not be the case anymore. But, but it's really something that we're going to have to see. Rachel, let me ask you, uh, I know that universities uh, do a lot of research and hold many patents uh, and often are not inclined to commercialize uh, their patents. Could, what would be the effect of this ruling on, on, on that type of research in university patents? You know, I, I personally think there will be, with respect to universities, Sort of a, a ripple of concern and a lot of discussion, and in the long run, no effect. Because I, I think the primary reason that universities do research is for the reason that they have for thousands of years, and that's because people who are, you know, who are living the life of intellectuals and who want to be academics are doing it to advance knowledge in whatever field they're they're working in. And that may sound kind of you know, Pollyannish, but I think it's really true. And then. Universities, of course, today get a lot of their funding from the federal government in the scientific areas. They also get funding that comes to them through research grants from industry. I think that industry is going to continue to give research grants to universities because it is an incredibly powerful way for them to get really brilliant people working on their problems. 
And I think that they're going to see that, you know, the chips are going to fall where they're going to fall as you go down the road with something valuable. But they're still going to do the research because you have to do it. And I think then when universities actually have patents, they may have an individual lawsuit sometimes that goes a little bit differently. But I suspect that unlike the patent holding companies, which, you know, for better or for worse, have kind of started off their life, their, their life with a bad rap, and, and therefore are kind of unattractive plaintiffs in the eyes of some judges, and certainly the judge in the, in the eBay case, universities don't have that negative cloud hanging over them. And I think that they will get a more sympathetic hearing when it comes to this kind of issue. So does that mean now that patent, the patent trolls or patent holding companies are actually going to be utilizing the uh, inventor uh, to prosecute the case instead of uh, and maybe hide behind them? Is that a way to solve that problem from their perspective? Mm, probably not. I mean, if, if a patent holding company can retain an inventor as a consultant and be able to use him as a witness in a case, they're already going to be doing that because it makes the case a better case to a jury. Um, and so I, I think smart patent holding companies have already been doing that kind of arrangement if they could, um, simply because it makes a lot of things about their case better, not just an injunction. I think the, the real issue that, that at least some judges look at pretty harshly is, uh, you know, are you a company which isn't in the business of trying to actually make products and deliver them to the public? And, and whether you do or don't have the inventor kind of in your, in your train isn't going to help you with those judges. Yeah, they have a product or you don't. But I forget whether it's one of the concurring opinions or the main opinion. I mean, there was a reference to the fact that a, a lack of commercial activity uh, doesn't defeat the the the, the, the uh, suit for an injunction. I, I mean, you can you don't need to be able to show commercial activity in order to obtain an injunction. Right. That was the main. That was the in the main opinion. It was one of the things that there was a specific criticism that the Supreme Court had of the district court because the district court judge had said that. Um, a lack of commercial activity and the plaintiff's willingness to license his patent to others is sufficient to establish that the patent holder is not going to suffer irreparable harm in the absence of an injunction. So basically the district court applied a presumption that if you are a patent holding company who's not making a product yourself, you're not going to get an injunction because you can't show irreparable harm. And the Supreme Court said that's wrong. You can't apply a presumption of that kind. But And essentially the Supreme Court's decision is that you know, a patent holding company might or might not get an injunction. And, and they didn't preclude the fact that they're a patent holding company from being a factor in that determination. But it just can't, it, it's not a sufficient reason to deny an injunction. Exactly. You can't, it can't be a categorical rule, is what they said. Well, let's take a little bit, look down the pike. What kinds of things are coming up through the district courts and the uh, appellate courts that w- will have a, an effect on patent law in the future? I think that one case that's at the Supreme Court right now, and we're looking for a decision in the next few weeks, at least by the end of June, is this case called LabCorp versus Metabolite. And, uh, and like, like eBay, the LabCorp case has the potential of having a lot of effect on business method-type patents. That case is actually about a medical method. It's a, it's a method of diagnosing, I think, whether someone has vitamin B deficiency. But a lot of people, including myself, think that it might have some effect on how business methods are perceived. And, and, and I think the eBay case is interesting in that we had this, four, this group of four justices uh, led by Kennedy who had the concurrence, uh, and, and they were quite critical of business method-type patents. 
and uh, you know, if they pull together one other justice to join their group of four, uh, then, then we could have a uh, quite a dramatic decision in, in the LabCorp case. Yes, it's, it's, I, I thought that comment about business method patents was quite striking because it's a comment that you see in district court opinions after the patent has been found valid and infringed, and yet they say these patents are of suspect validity. Right. And when you read a decision like that, you can't help thinking, well, if they are of suspect validity, why were they not invalidated? That's, um, in that's the right. Case it's that very interesting you. that they suggested bringing validity of the patent into the decision on injunction. And so, you know, it's something like, Sure, the jury says it's valid, but uh, it's only barely valid, and therefore we're not going to grant an injunction. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because what this, I think this is a very good point, and what it suggests is that you could have a case where the plaintiff wins on infringement, and they win on invalidity, and the defendant, of course, is going to bring a motion after the jury verdict to say that, as a matter of law, those decisions were wrong, and the judge should reverse them, and say that the jury was wrong about infringement or wrong about invalidity, and and only if the defendant loses that motion, of course, is, is an injunction going to issue. And, and what's being suggested here is that, that the defendant could lose that motion. That is, the judge is not willing to say the jury verdict is wrong, and yet he retains enough doubt, or she retains enough doubt, that she's not going to grant an injunction because it was too close a call. Uh, there's a lingering issue about invalidity, even though the patent was held valid by both the jury and, in effect, the judge refused to disturb that verdict. Our time is just about up here. Uh, I'd like to give each of you an opportunity to tell our listeners uh, where they can find more about you, if you'd like to do that, a website, a phone number, an email address. Uh, Rachel, how can our guests find out more about you and your practice? Uh, on our firm's website, which our, my firm name is Morrison and & Forster, and our, and our nickname is, in fact, MoFo, and so our website is very easy to find, mofo.com. Thank you very much. And Dennis? Uh, the, the easiest way to find me is at my uh, Patently O blog, which is uh, aptly addressed patentlyo.com. Great. Well, we've really appreciated having both of you as guests today and for your fine insights on the changes in patent law and the future of patent law. So, Bob, that's going to wrap it up for Coast to Coast this week. I'll talk to you next week. All right. Thanks to our guests for their time, and good to talk to you, Craig. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Coast to Coast with Robert Ambrogi and J. Craig Williams. Coast to Coast has been sponsored by Law.com. We hope you'll listen again and check out our other shows on the Legal Talk Network. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Somm. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.